Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. It is incredibly saddening to me when I see people trapped in what I like to call This Is All There Is Christianity. In this sermon entitled Daring to Ask for More, Pastor Eric Ludy proclaims that there is more to be had and God desires to give it. He wants to increase our capacity to enjoy Him thoroughly and wholeheartedly. Please feel free to contact us at www.ellersley.com and enjoy the message. Father, if your church doesn't go after the fullness of what you purchased on that cross, we'll be unable to meet the demands of our age and our generation. For truth has fallen in the streets. And Lord Jesus, you have assigned us as your body to lift high the name of Jesus Christ that all men may be drawn unto him, unto you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this message would burn in our souls and it would make us new. It would create even a greater fervency, a greater drive. It would get us up off the couch. We would not be observers of triumphant Christianity, but we would be livers of it. Please, Lord Jesus, press us forward. Amen. This is, there's certain messages that I prepare that there's a, a wrestling match in the process of preparing it because the truth is a very fresh one in me. This is a truth I've been wrestling with for years of my life. If I could try and bake it down into a sentence, it would be, is this all there is, or is there more? And if this is all there is, someone please break the news to me quick, because I don't want to keep thinking there should be more if this is all there is. I'll just sort of settle into the mediocrity, I'll resign myself to it, and I'll accept the fact that all there is is a little pat on the back from God in the here and now. And a little assurance, a little confidence that maybe the end chapter will be a good one. But all the chapters in between are riddled with the mundane and the mediocre and defeat. Is there something more? Because if there's something more, Lord Jesus, reveal it to me. Show me how to get it. What needs to be done? Remember the Jews crying out in in Jerusalem. What must we do to be saved? What must we do to be saved from the mediocrity of the culture in which we live, the Christianity in which we live. What must we do to go beyond it, to see something more? Well, that's the cry of this message. I'm going to start with a premise point, and it's this. There is more than than what any of you have tasted up to this point, and I say that very confidently. In other words, I guarantee you There is more than what the rank-and-file Christian is enjoying today. And even the sturdiest and the brawniest of us, there is more and there are deeper waters to explore. That is a principle of the kingdom that I would like to introduce you to today. A principle of the kingdom that we could, in the most basic sense, call maturity. 
God didn't have to make the principle of maturity. He wove it into his creation. Things start as seeds and grow up unto mighty plants of renown. How does that work? It's strange, but it doesn't just start full bloom. He starts with seeds, and then they need to be watered. They need to be tended to. And if they're tended to properly, then there is a plant that comes forth, but not just a plant, a plant that bears fruit, that flowers, and brings forth its fragrance and its bounty into the earth. If that plant is stunted, if we take a seed and we say that's all there is, and we set it on the counter and we say thank you God for the seed, but we never allow that seed to go into the ground and die. If we don't then tend to the seed and we allow the hot sun to bake on it without any nurturing, it will die. There is an anticipation of the saints that what God begins he brings to completion. But that means that what he begins isn't done. What he begins is now in process of becoming full and complete and finished. But if we start with the mentality that we're finished, then we never have the mentality to say, there is more that needs to be done. I must tend to something. God must tend to something. How does this work? How do I go from seed unto plant of renown? Well, how in the world do we name uh, this message? And so uh, I, I came up with, I, I must have had five, six different names this week, and I kept changing it on my notes. Uh, I always have a placeholder name. Very rarely does my placeholder name end up being the name. This one was chosen right at the last minute, and it came from the very last scripture that I will, that I will share with you. And so, it all, but it does enunciate the entire message. Daring to ask for more. It's not just asking for more. It's daring to ask for more. There's an audacity of soul that God is looking for to and fro throughout this generation. Will anyone ask? Or are you all so afraid that this is all there is? And so you've gone into silence. You've gone into hiding. You've accepted the defeat. Rise up and dare to ask for more. Your God is ready to listen. His ear is wide open. Ask whatsoever you will. What are you after? What do you want? Do you want to stay in your state or do you want more? All right, we have a principle here. In Deuteronomy, we have this very interesting pattern. I call it the pattern of the kingdom. You see, the kingdom of Israel had not yet been established. The domain of the king had not yet been established. The territory had not yet been claimed. And so we have this progression out of Egypt into the wilderness, and they stagnated in the wilderness because of unbelief for 40 years. But then at the end of 40 years, Moses gives a speech known as the book of Deuteronomy. It's one gigantic speech. I cannot imagine what it would have been, would have been like. To, I don't know if they had breaks in between, little say laws in between. It's like, okay, guys, let's take a break for lunch. This is one long speech. But what is this speech? Moses is saying, I cannot enter in. Moses is symbolic of the law. The law isn't what will save you. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, is the one who will save the law is the one who leads you up into that land of promise. But it cannot take you in. It shows you the land. It shows you the bounty and the beauty. But only Jesus can take you in. And so Moses has to hold back. But he says, here is the land you're going into. This is what you will run into. This is how you need to approach every dimension. This is how you build the kingdom of Israel. And so this incredible book is actually a pattern for how the kingdom is built within us as believers. 
What was external back then in the Old Testament is now internal within us. And so when we look at Deuteronomy, there is a translation into the soul, the inner man, of us taking territory, which is known as the soul. It's the land of promise. God is after it. God is desiring to turn this desert land, this land that is actually encroached upon and and there's strongholds within it. 31 hostile empires have overtaken the soul of men and God says, I want to go in and take it and claim it for myself and make it a land flowing with milk and honey where there'll be beauty in the land, that there'll be fruit that is born in this land that defies the nations of this earth. I think uh, Nathan Johnson a couple days ago was giving us a message uh, and he was talking about the fruit that they had to carry out between poles. May the fruit of our lives be so large and so grand that the world around just gapes in awe and wonder. No one can make fruit like that come out of their life. That's right. Only Jesus can. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the new land. It's the fruit of the abundant life. And so we have this principle that comes out of Deuteronomy. How they're going to take the land. This is interesting because what's our mindset about this? God has given us the land. We're at the the River Jordan. We're staring over into it. God has defined the territory and he says, take it. Wherever your foot shall tread, he has given us that territory. But guess what? This is a lot of territory. It's going to take a bit of time to put your foot on every single uh, square foot of the land of promise. But wherever your foot treads, he gives it to you. So our mentality is this. We take a step forward and all the 31 empires just go, and they fall flat. Isn't that the way it should be? We have a big God, don't we? So is it a diminishment of our big God to realize that there is actually a process of gaining territory. That when we take a step of obedience, 31 empires don't just immediately fall into our hands. That there is actually a principle of little by little. Now I want to balance this out with the fact that when you take forward strides, as we've talked about it at Ellerslie, David hastened unto the battle with Goliath. Each individual battle can fall and can finish in seconds. Jericho fell in seven days. That isn't 70 years. Most of us as Christians are saying, well, this may take years. Jericho can be dealt with in one blow of a trumpet. It's obedience that causes those walls to fall. However, the entirety of the land, the entirety of the exceeding great and precious promises as revealed in the Bible. I'm going to make a statement here. Is little by little. Exodus 23. I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee and I will send hornets before thee which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year. Well, that's a strange comment. Have it in one moment. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year. Listen to his reasoning. This is God speaking. Lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. There is a need for the Israelites to increase to the level where they can inhabit the land. And if they are not increased to the level to have the capacity to defend that land, then God says, no, this is actually an unhealthy pattern. You know, this is... 
This is profound. Most of us have never even considered this. God, give us the land. I know you've given it to us. So why don't we have it in totality yet? Because you still need to increase to the level that you can maintain this land. So he gives it to us little by little. And he increases us little by little to the point where as we progress, the land becomes ours in totality. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea even unto the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert unto the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out from before thee. So this is a statement in Exodus, not Deuteronomy, so massively misleading, but aren't you glad we can correct ourselves with it here? Uh, The point is, this is the statement of the process of taking the land of promise. The impossible commission. So let's, for a second, ponder, just like push a pause button, let's ponder Exceeding great and precious promises, right? The exceeding great and impossible commission that God has given us. We need to go forth and live this impossible life. That's, that's what it is. And so when you're sitting around in your stupor, your Christian stupor going, is this all there is? Well, look what we're staring at. We should be perfect, we should be holy, we should be slaves to righteousness, we should be dead to sin, we should be pictures of supernatural love, we should not shrink back from death, we should deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow. That is just the beginning, the tip of an iceberg. When you start studying scripture, you begin to realize how little you have of this, which is where that moan of soul comes from. You've given us this whole land and I feel like all I have is an edge of it. I don't, I don't know, understand this experientially. I don't fully know what it means. I mean, we should be perfect. We should be holy. It's a command. It's not a suggestion like here's an opportunity. You know, you're trying to figure out how to fill your summer break. Why don't you be holy this summer? You know, it's just one way. Instead of being bored over here, why don't you try being perfect? This isn't an option like the bonus track that we could listen to if we want. This is a command for every Christian. And so as you stare square into it, you realize, I think there's something I'm missing. Exactly. There is something you're missing. There is more. It's like taking Jericho and then establishing the kingdom of Israel from Kadesh Barnea in the River Jordan to Jericho. And that's it now. We have this little corner of the promised land. And then when someone says, well, aren't you supposed to take I? Aren't you supposed to take the, uh, the, the Jebusites out and the Hittites? Aren't you supposed to go after them too? Well, no, you know, this is, this is all we can expect from God. I mean, look at he did this. He gave us Jericho, and he wants to give you more. But you must dare to go after it. Okay, I'm going to introduce you to two gospels that are based on the misconception of this idea of being finished from the very beginning. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And so all these Christians say, it is finished. You can't say that we don't have everything. Jesus said it's finished. It's finished in heaven. Satan's on the throne down here still. Does that look like finished? It's not done yet down here. There is work to do in you. There is work to do in this earth. That's what we're here for, is to bring the will of the kingdom of heaven to bear upon earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, it is established. Jesus is preeminent. He is the king of all kings. On earth, 
It hasn't yet been realized. But the saints of God join together with the Spirit of God. And we say, come Lord Jesus, come. The full reality, the full glory and manifestation of your person, of your ruling kingdom down here as it is in heaven. Okay, so here's one of the options. This would be considered more of the uh, charismatic option, which would be the instant maturity and perfection gospel. We're done. I'm complete. I'm mature and perfect. Why? Because I entered into Jesus Christ, and he's complete and perfect. It actually makes sense if you think about it. I have entered into Jesus Christ, therefore, since he's perfect and he's complete, I must be too. So you have all that God gives the moment you believe. So you took one step forward and you went from literally not even being conceived yet in the womb to being a full-grown 50-year-old man or woman. It just, boom, you are done. You are complete. It is over. It is finished. Okay, now I want you to know that there is a whole bunch of Christians that fall under this banner and they actually believe that they are finished. And as a result, they have no expectation that there needs to be any more work done in their soul. But if you were looking at a little infant, and that infant started carrying around a briefcase and walking in daddy's shoes, acting like they're ready to go off to work and you know, support a family, they want to get married, uh, we'd be like, you know what, little guy? Uh, I think there's a little growing that is still needed. Why? I have the DNA of my daddy. You have the DNA, but the DNA hasn't been fully expressed in the full maturity yet. And that little one, that little infant, has to go through a process of growth and development. And it's little by little. And as he increases to fill in those shoes, he can walk in them. It is a process that God has designed in the very fabric of his creation. And he didn't, you know, accidentally do it. He's not upset with himself going, oh, I should have made it instant. He did it this way as a reflection of his glory. He knew we would have to start at his infants and then progress to toddlerhood. He knew we would have to go through those awkward, gangly teen years in our spiritual development. Puberty, spiritual puberty. You ever gone through that? You're like praying, it's like, and your voice is cracking. Okay, the instant maturity and perfection gospel. Five crazy realities of the instant maturity and perfection gospel, otherwise known as the IMNP gospel. Okay, look at these. These are actually what happen if you think that you're done the moment you come to Jesus Christ. Well, we will stay infants. For if we find ourselves behaving as an infant, i.e. lacking any self-control, whining over difficulties, hot-tempered, self-pitying, and completely self-centered, then we must deny the reality and in faith claim that such behavior, though it may not look like it, it, like it, it is indeed adult behavior. No, we are finished. And so even though we're acting as infants, no, this isn't an infant, this is an adult. And so in faith, we take this adultness and we say, I have adultness in Jesus Christ. We're behaving as little infants and guess why? Because we are little infants. And it's okay to acknowledge that. Your faith is meant to appropriate all that is needed to continue the maturing process. We will justify our defeat. Anything we do in our decaying marriages, our withering parenting attempts, our polluted lives, and our fake ministries must be right and perfect because 
Hasn't God made us perfect as he is perfect? Sure, we may be difficult to be around, but whereas everyone else is busy complaining about imperfections, we are doing the one thing God has asked of us, and that is to believe that the work is finished, and we are indeed perfect. And so we're justifying our defeat. Oh, this is perfection right here, because I'm in Christ. And the whole while, everyone in this earth is looking at you going, you are one miserable guy. And we're faking it. We're having to tell ourselves we're done, we're finished, we're perfect. I know to many of you this is ridiculous. You know how many Christians live this way? Their marriages are falling apart. Their families are disintegrating. And they're saying, I'm complete in Jesus Christ. This must be what Christ intended. And they're having to lie to themselves over and over again because they don't understand that if you're a toddler, you behave as a toddler. And you need to grow up unto a full maturity. That's what we're after. We're daring to ask for more as little toddlers. God, grow me. Raise me up. Do your work in me. We will spiritualize our sin. Your behavior, including your chronic lying, your outbursts of rage, your unethical business practices, your physical abuse of those near and dear, and your complete lack of love for those entrusted to your care, is now the new rule of righteousness. Because aren't you now the righteousness of God? Now you have to explain it all, so it spiritualizes everything. It's like, sure, this might look like sin to other people, but I'm the righteousness of God. This is the way God intended it. We will not be able to hear correction or rebuke. For any sort of behavioral correction or attitudinal rebuke is a direct and tactical assault on our position in Christ. For it is our job to believe that though our lives show absolutely no evidence of it, we are, in fact, now mature and perfect in Jesus. How dare someone claim that we aren't? And so we actually feel like we're defending the word of God by saying, how dare you think that this isn't done? I'm in Jesus Christ and I'm perfect. We've stunted ourselves. People actually do this. They think this. And as a result, it's the missing ingredient of recognizing forward progression. We will never change, for there is never any need for improvement, never any need for spiritual effort or work, never any need to feel a farthing of conviction. For improvement, spiritual work, and conviction are operations of the devil, who doesn't want us to know that we are fully completed, the fully completed work of Christ. Do you see how the logic works? Okay, now let's go to the opposite extreme. That's one way that people can think about it when they say, you know, we're done. There's no more. Now, most of us are a hybrid, okay, where we think, well, I don't know, I can't expect anything more, but I want you to realize when you begin to trim the possibilities of there being more, something is decaying within your soul. If you don't realize that there's more out there, something begins to erode. If you're an infant and you actually think everyone around you is infants too, why would you ever expect that toddlerhood was a possibility? And if you're a toddler, why would you think that there's anything more than that? Could you imagine if you're the only toddler and everyone's infants? You know what? I'm doing pretty good as a toddler. You know, as you're toddling around, uh, still in a diaper. Well, if no one else is even beyond infancy, you're looking pretty good. You've just begun in your spiritual development. Okay, this is the second option. The this is all we can expect gospel. Now look, it's the same exact subtitle as the previous one. You have all that God gives the moment you believe. You ever heard people said, say, you know, they, they get in defense. If we ever start talking about the Holy Spirit, they go, no, there is nothing more of the Holy Spirit available because you have the Holy Spirit at, con at conversion. That's all there is. Uh-huh, and look what you end up with, with this mentality. That this is all we can expect gospel. You have all that God gives the moment you believe. Five sad realities of the Aki gospel. All we can expect, gospel. We will fail. 
Like Peter at the Last Supper, we can esteem the notion of giving up everything for Jesus and dying the hero's death. But in actuality, when tested, we will fail. For what we have of the Spirit is sufficient to illuminate the person of Jesus to our minds, but not to see the nature of Jesus planted inside our hearts. Peter spoke of the Holy, by the Holy Spirit to say, you are the Christ. He obviously had the Spirit at some level, some measure. But guess what? When it came to the test, I'll die for you, he failed. And so will we. The Aki Gospel leaves a man insufficient to pull off the Christian life. Tarry here in Jerusalem. Stay here in this upper room until you have the endowment from on high. You need something more. Number two, we will turn to ourselves for the solution. Why? Because there's nothing else beyond what we have. And it's insufficient to meet the demands or the commands of Scripture. If there is nothing more to be offered from the cross, then the only solution for bettering the life of the believer and bringing it into alignment with the scriptural pattern is to find what is offered in our self-effort. Do you see how twisted this is? If you begin to say there's nothing more, we already have it. I don't know why people fight this so much. That we have everything we, we need. And we're looking at you going, you know what, you're not that impressive of a Christian though. Hey, this is all, I'm, I'm in Christ and I'm covered with the blood of Jesus, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, and you're decaying in the meantime because you were never meant to stunt in this development. You need to grow up under the full maturity, and that's just the beginning. Number three, did I read the last one? We will turn to ourselves for the solution, yes. Number three, we will lessen the standards of righteousness. Since our self-effort is certain to fail, our attempts at matching the perfection of Christ will fall miserably short. And since there is no additional remedy provided by God for our problem, the only remaining solution is to revisit God's requirements and to find a way to revamp them and make them humanly possible. Do you see how this has progressed throughout our generation? We have literally said, no, we don't need anything more. We have all we need. And we have the Spirit of God to see and to be able to testify that Jesus died 2,000 years ago. Well, you know what? That's good. Just like it's good that that little infant is learning to keep stable its neck. But that isn't where an infant stop, stops. That is just where they're beginning. They're learning to physiologically coordinate this body. And they need greater strength. It needs to increase. If the infant is left with just as little bit of strength that it has, it will fail as an adult. It will not be able to function and walk in this life with the little puny strength that it has when it is three months old. Number four, we will accept the discrepancy between the modern church and the standards of the Bible. Without even a peep, we will subside into silence and turn a blind eye to the vast difference between the modern believing church and that which is described as the true church in the Bible. Number five, we will, secretly, we will be secretly miserable in our Christianity. Of course, we will try not to let on, but deep inside, we will be holy without life and void of joy. The substance of Christianity will be known in our minds only, while our lives will be absent of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And if we choose to stay, it's because we know Jesus is real and we simply have no better options to turn to. So why do we stay as Christians? Because there's no other option outside of it that we feel is even valid. So we remain Christians even though we are defeated, there is nothing more, our self-effort is failing, and we're having to cover it all up with a smile and a, a few brothers and sisters and amens and hallelujahs. But inside we're dying because we have a gospel that truncated the more. There must be something more, otherwise we don't have what is sufficient to meet the demands of this life.
the endless frontier. There is never an end to our discovery of Christ, our growth in Christ, our work for Christ, and our ever-increasing admiration of Christ. So you'll notice I'm going to directly oppose the two gospels that were just presented. Most of you would oppose them as well. However, some of us are a hybrid version of quite a few things. Okay, the notion of cessationism is basically the trimming of the wings of the expectation that that which empowered the early church is what empowers us. And we have what is sufficient in the text of the word of God to enable the church forward. And I would like you to know that I have a very high regard for the text of scripture. I think it is an unbelievably sufficient thing but to lead us into the presence of the word of God. The text of the word of God is what leads us into the presence of the word of God. And the text and the presence combined leads us to the person of Jesus Christ. And the spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus. And one day in physical presence, he literally will stand upon Mount Olivet and it will divide asunder. But we need the presence and the text Not just the text. Don't leave me just with the text, God. Please, I need the empowerment of the text in my life because I can't do the things that it's commanding. I need everything, all the muscle of heaven to be able to pull this off. Please do not retract your spirit. Do not take away from the saints of God that which is needed to live the life, not just esteem the life mentally. We need the engine in the car, and that is the Spirit of God. The endless frontier is something I've talked about for years. I'm not going to go into it in great detail, but in a very simple summation, my vocal coach is like his master vocal coach, Dr. Scott Martin, actually, you know, Ben's vocal coach too. And he's quite the, the guy, very eccentric, sort of like Yoda. And he's a master of the human voice. And when he is teaching you how to sing, he basically, one of his first statements to me was, Eric, you need to train six hours a day. I'm thinking, what in the world? Who has six hours a day to train in singing? He says, "Uh, those who want to be the best. And his entire mentality of singing is that you take one step forward and you've only just begun. And so I'd been training under him for a year, and I've been averaging about two and a half hours of training a day, which is a ton. He was disappointed in me the entire year. I mean, sort of like, you've got to be kidding. Why do I put up with you? And I'm killing myself for this guy. And so I figure, what would it take? Three months to become a professional singer? I have one of the best vocal coaches in the world training me. Three months, and I could be professional. I mean, what, what's taking it so long? He never once for an entire year gave me a compliment. So finally, after a year of training, killing myself for this guy, trying to get the compliment out of him, fishing for it, I finally got up the guts to ask straight out, um, Scott, how, how good am I? He looks at me and chuckles, and he says, uh, Eric, you played soccer, didn't you? I go, yeah. How old are you when you started playing soccer? I was like, seven. He goes, okay, imagine, you're seven years old, you've been playing soccer for one month. How good were you? I go, I stunk. He goes, exactly. <laughs> training for a year, two and a half hours a day. This is talk about deflating the big pin in the balloon. And he says, but before you get you know, too discouraged, I'm like, oh, too late for that. Eric, you need to realize that singing is an endless frontier. You have taken one step into an endless frontier and you're asking me how far you've gone. You've gone one step into an endless frontier. Now, Eric, you're one step further than 99.9% of the rest of the human race. But never pitch your tent. That little truth right there, wrapped up in a little simple metaphor, will change your life. 
and it will change Christianity. Because we must realize that if we take one step of obedience and everyone around us is still way back there, I mean, come on, no one else has taken that step, we are still one step into an endless frontier. And God is saying to us, never pitch your tent. There is more to be discovered. Onward! Pull up the tent stakes! Onward! The church of Jesus Christ is stagnated in the wilderness. We're staring into the promised land, esteeming it, saying, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, praise God for lands flowing with milk and honey. Blessed be God. Go in and take it. Dare to ask for it. Dare to see it in your life realized. Is the spirit given without measure? Okay, you come to Jesus Christ. You need the spirit even to be awakened. The Holy Spirit must have already been working on you even to awaken and to illuminate your mentality, your thinking, your eyesight spiritually for you to see Jesus. Everything is spiritually understood in the kingdom of heaven and we are spiritual knuckleheads. We are. We have no discernment, no ability to see, no ability to understand. So it takes the spirit of God even to warm up our spirit to be able to see and hear. It's like, oh, I hear something. What's, what is that? That's God. And then the gospel tear comes into our life and presents it clearly. And we're ready for it. And we say, yes, I know I need it. I don't know why I know I need it, but I know I need it. That's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit to warm you. It's the work of the Spirit to push you and to draw you into the kingdom. So the question is, is the Spirit given without measure? In other words, God doesn't measure it out. Say he has 100 degrees of of Spirit, of Holy Spirit power. Holy Spirit life, the essence, the fullness of the deity. Does he just pour it into you all at once? The fullness of the life of Jesus at the moment you say, yes, is in you to fullest capacity. It's an interesting question. Is it? Is what you have right now the fullness of God? Everything that God is is inside of you right now. Is it? That's the question. That's the doctrinal theological question of the age. Do you have the fullest measure of Jesus Christ right now? Because all these doctrinal disputes are about this right now, and people are saying, of course we do. Why would we need more? Because it says in John 3.34, for he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. Listen to this line. For God giveth not the spirit by measure. You'll notice there's two more words there. Unto him, speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is, depending on which translation you look at, you actually could read this, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure. This is John the Baptist speaking. And it could just be a fact. I believe scripture. It says that God does not give the Spirit by measure. He only gives the Spirit in totality, obviously, then. The King James adds this little thing in there because of the context, and it says, unto him, unto Jesus. Now, I want you to think through this and reason through this. Let's take the two words out. It doesn't matter how you look at this. I believe that God has given the spirit without measure unto Jesus' body. We have. The body of Christ has it without measure. But each of us are individuals. We are members of the body of Christ. And we do not have it in fullness. We have it in part. So I would like to lay a foundation. I had an incredible just like legal argument for this. I could go through all of scripture and show. Spiritual mathematics that God speaks in parts, portions, divisions, multiplication. 
You cannot speak in division, multiplication, addition, and subtraction if there isn't pieces and measurements along the way. You know one of the most common words in the New Testament? Not the most common. One very common word in the New Testament, metron. It means measure. God is always measuring out things. Now, how many stories can you think of, just as I say this, that say, first of all, you prove faithful with this measure, and then you'll be entrusted with a greater measure. That's how it works in the kingdom of heaven. This one scripture in John 3, 34 has tripped up so many people, and it becomes their basis, and they little build a little tent on top of it and say, see, I have the full measure of the Spirit. Jesus had the full measure of the Spirit, and we are learning to take little by little and gain great gains to become and to grow up under the perfect man, as it says in Ephesians 3. We are not there yet. According to the, this is just spiritual mathematics. This is just to give you a few words in in the New Testament. And I think I threw in one Old Testament. According to the measure of the gift of Christ, increase our faith. Some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Isn't that bizarre? He increased. He He must increase. I must decrease. The word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied. God gave the increase. The measure of faith, the proportion of faith, that literally when talking about the body of Christ, says that you have a measure. And then in a the couple scriptures later, it says, your proportion, according to your proportion, the amount given to you, you must function with that. And you must prove faithful with your proportion. Dividing to every man. Speaking of spiritual power. That's literally what it's talking about. Dividing to every man. Multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. The Lord make you to increase and abound in love. That means love can increase. If love can increase, that means you don't have the full measure of love yet. It must increase in you. And Paul's great prayer is that you would abound and increase. When your faith is increased, which means it's not at the fullest level, which is pretty obvious to many of us. But that means that it can increase. If you have the fullness, that means you would have the fullness. If you have all the land and all 31 empires are decimated and under the feet of of Jesus Christ, then guess what? That would be the reality in your life. It wouldn't be the wishful thinking, then you have to deny the reality and say, oh no, but they're all defeated. They are, but you must take it. You must take the land one step at a time. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Pleonazo means to superabound, to make increase over and over, to make exist in abundance, to grow large. Is the endless frontier in the New Testament. Paul is always saying, oh, that you would superabound, that you would pleonazo, that you would increase over and over and over again, that you would continue to press on, that you would grow and abound. The word literally is to superabound. This is like Superman type of terminology. Bounding over tall buildings. It is a growth beyond measure. It is not just an increase. Mike, let's put a little 5% increase on your bank account. You know, if you had 5% in a year on your little savings account, you know, you make these diddly squat amounts. This is like millions upon millions of percentage points in interest. Superabounding. Your love is exploding beyond measure. Okay, here's just a couple illustrations. In 2 Thessalonians, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith grows exceedingly, which means faith grows, and the charity of every one of you 
all toward each other aboundeth, which means it increases over and over and grows large. That's speaking of charity, love. That's what most of us understand it as. That means love increases over and over and grows large. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you, and abound, or increase over and over and grow large, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things are supposed to be in you, but they're supposed to be increasing over and over and over again. You can have the DNA as a little infant of your father, but you are not yet grown up under the full maturity and the full stature of that man. We have the DNA at conversion of Jesus Christ. There is a very real new birth within us, but it is a little infant in a stable, in a feeding trough within us. And he begins to illuminate our life. He begins to renew our mind. He begins to overtake and grow and mature and express himself through these hands and these feet, this mouth, these eyes. And every aspect of our being begins to be overtaken. We decrease and he increases. It's Christianity. We decrease. He increases. Little by little, he increases. Little by little, we decrease. There are big steps forward when walls of Jericho collapse. And there are small steps forward when you're going in between battles. The ever-increasing fruit principle. And other fell on good ground. Speaking of the seed that is in the story uh, of the sower. And did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some 30 and some 60 and some 100 fold. So this is the principle. The seed is being scattered, is being thrown about, but the soil in which it lands on, sometimes it's increasing 30, sometimes 60, and sometimes 100. Well, that means that there's a differentiation between how it is being responded to. Mathematically, 30 and 100 are different, which means the crop that is being yielded out of one life is not the same as another. Both good land. That means there is a differentiation between us as the saints in how we are modeling and showcasing the kingdom of heaven. It's not all just done, this big pat thing where God just says, you're done, you're done, you're done. Oh, you're done. Okay, good, we can move on now. And you just live your life in lethargy, lassitude, and moral debasement. Okay, this is still talking about the ever-increasing fruit principle. Now, he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Looks like I have a little smiley face with a wink at the end of that one. The ever-strengthening body principle. So we're talking about fruit first, that fruit is supposed to ever increase. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Over and over and abounding of it. The ever-strengthening body principle. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working, in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We are all supposed to be a member of the body, always increasing. If each of us is increasing, then it is under the edifying of itself in love. God will get his glory and his due, but we are not supposed to stagnate. We are not supposed to stay where we are. And not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. We are all supposed to be increasing with the increase of God. God increases. That is a weird statement I realize, especially if you've always had the mentality that you have all you need. You do. 
for right now. But God is saying, just like that toddler has everything they need, you know what they're going to need more? They're going to need more education. They're going to need more spiritual vitality and spiritual understanding. Little Deborah Dew at two years old has everything he needs right now to be a two-year-old toddler. I do not test him. I do not uh, challenge him beyond his range of being a two-year-old. But as he grows, guess what his dad is going to do? I'm going to put responsibility on him. I'm going to challenge him. I'm going to hold him to a higher level of accountability. He's going to be trained into a gentleman. He's going to be a man of steel, a man of down. We're going to see this little one develop. So I'm only testing him in accordance with the grace he has right now as a two-year-old toddler. But as he progresses, he is going to be challenged beyond that to the level when he's seven, a seven-year-old can handle more. Hudson can handle more than Dubber can right now. And so Hudson has a greater level of responsibility. It's the same with us. The ever-growing love principle. So we had fruit, then we had body, then we had love as a specific. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Increase and abound in love. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are all in Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren. So they're already pretty good at this whole brotherly love thing. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. What? How do you argue this? Do we just have the finished product? There's a process of increase over and over increase. What do you need to increase in love, by the way? Is it willpower? Is it grit and determination? I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be loving. You ever tried that? It doesn't work. You can tell yourself over and over, I'm going to be pure. I'm not going to have thoughts like that anymore. It doesn't do anything for you. How do you increase in love? How do you increase in purity? How do you increase in patience? How do you increase in joy? How do you increase in peace? It's with the increase of God. God increases and love increases. So we seek more of God, and we get more of God. The ever-developing faith principle. So we talked about fruit, the body, love, or yeah, I think it was love, now faith. Not boasting of things without our measure, but that is of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith grows exceedingly. Whatever little diddly squat amount of faith you have now, say it's a little penny, say it's a dollar, say it's a $10 bill, I want you to begin to invest it. Don't bury it as that one character did the talent of gold. Invest it. Put it in the marketplace and let it grow. That is the principle, as we will soon see here. Okay, the childlike receive a portion, the trustworthy receive more. I would like to challenge you with this. You challenge this back. This is what the kingdom of heaven, Jesus, when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, what does he show? Over and over again, he shows this principle. Why he gives his servants anything is surprising to us. Because these guys are dolts. You got this one guy here who's going to put it in a napkin and bury it in the, in the dirt. Why did he give it to him in the first place? He gives to the childlike a portion. And he says, prove how you're going to handle that portion. And then I will give you more. You know, that's how every parent is. This is the pattern of the kingdom of heaven. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Who said that? Jesus. Do you know that he abides by his own commands? you know that he does not give his pearls to swine? 
He does not give that which is sacred to the dogs. He wants to test you. Swine, dog, hmm. I'm going to entrust you with this. Show me what you do with it. It's an interesting point. That's actually what the kingdom of heaven is modeled after. Jesus does not give the most precious thing in all the universe, which is the spirit of himself, the very essence and virtue of heaven, without us showing that we've been faithful with little. He gives us a portion of himself. and says, how are you going to handle that? And then he gives us more. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received, this is one of uh, Jesus' parables, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So he'd given to three different men different amounts of money. Now this is gold. This is a different one than the talents of gold. This is just gold. That, ever, that they might know how much every man had gained by trading. In other words, the king has come back and he's saying, how much have you gained by trading? I've given you something. What did you do with it? Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. And he said unto him, well thou, good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, having thou authority, have thou authority over 10 cities. You were faithful with little. Now, I give you authority over 10 cities. Why does he just give us authority over the 10 cities to start with? I mean, isn't that what we are? Aren't we gaining the inheritance of God? Don't we rule and reign with Christ Jesus? Aren't we seated in heavenly places? Why don't I have the 10 cities now? You take this little amount right here. Show me what you're going to do with it. Because I can't give that which is a pearl and that which is sacred to dogs and to swine. Prove that you value it, that you treasure it, and you will get more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. It's a different story, actually. Here's another one. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. You have been entrusted with least, with little. Prove. Prove to your king that you have been faithful with it, that you treat it as if it's the most important thing in your life. What have you been given? You've been given spiritual eyesight. Why? I'm not exactly sure. Why any of us can see what we see because there's a dying world out there that cannot see it. We see it. What are we doing with it? Are we just sitting in our barca lounger staring at a TV set? Is that what we're doing with the inheritance of heaven that we've been given? As little children, we've been given a portion, but what are we doing with the portion? That's the question. We're complaining in this day and age that we don't have more. Why isn't there more? Well, what are we doing with the little we do have? Let's stand up and begin to invest what we do have so that our king would smile and say, it's my great delight to give you more. 1 Timothy 3. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop... He desires a good thing. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, not a striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Okay, now you can say, what does this have to do with anything you're talking about? How does God build up his leaders in the church? What is his prescription? You measure them with little, and if they prove unable to handle the little, do not give them more. 
If a man can't even handle his own soul, he shouldn't be married. If a man knows how to handle his family, his wife and kids well, give him position in the church. But if he can't handle the little, guess what God says? Don't give him more. Don't give him more. Don't put him as a bishop. That's a protector of the church. Don't make a man a protector. Don't put him over 10 cities if he can't prove that he can handle 10 pounds of gold. God has given us a trust. But for whatever reason, we justify why God isn't a hard man. He's not a, he wouldn't exact out of us more than he's given us. He gave us one talent. We buried it. We still have the one talent. Hey, look, I still have it. I know exactly where it's buried. He'll take it from you. That's what it says. He's given you little. You invest it. You go to the marketplace of spiritual matters and you begin to trade it. And you begin to see it multiplied so that when your king comes back in and checks on you, you can say, that one or that ten, I have ten more. Here's ten cities. He increases our measure according to our faithfulness with little. Spiritual maturity, it's a constant, ever-present, ever-increasing measure of Christ within the believing man or woman. It is a principle of life. It is part of the order and economy of heaven. That there is something known as maturity. That when we start out, we're infant. And as we progress, we grow up unto a full maturity. There is a concept of what the stature of a complete man or woman looks like. And when we're newborn, we're not that. We're a miniature version of it. If you take a picture of, of a little baby when they first pop out of the womb, you know, red all over, a little grime that gets wiped off. It's usually not in the pictures. You know what? You can see a resemblance sometimes. I mean, Dubber do, it's hard to find that resemblance uh, with what he looks like now. But some, most of the time, there's a resemblance between what they look like when they first pop out and what they look like at the age of 50. So it's not that there isn't anything there. It's not that there isn't a real life. It's that it's just begun. May we not stunt it in saying, oh, we're done, life. How exciting, the joy of new birth. That's all there is. That is just the beginning. The ever-deepening waters of the Spirit. It is ever-deepening as it progresses under the full measure of promise and defines the outer edges of the purchase of the cross. When you first cross the Jordan River, you have just begun. There is a full measure of the inheritance. All that land. God has given a definition to it, just like he has with the exceeding great and precious promises. There's a definition to the land. But when you've taken one step, you haven't taken the thousandth step. You haven't taken the ten thousandth step yet. You still need to take step one, two, three, four, and five before you can get to step six. We want to be at step 10,000 before we've even taken step two. But God says, little by little, just begin to walk. Be obedient with the next thing, and you will see this largeness begin to grow within you. So in Ezekiel 43, I'm going to give a bit of Ezekiel here. Okay, Ezekiel has a revelation. He's brought up to a high mountain, and he has revealed the temple of God or the house of God, which, by the way, is a picture of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is a picture of what you ought to be. It's the perfect temple. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? Do you not know that you are the body of Christ? Christ's body in the New Testament is termed the temple of God. And do you not know that you are become the temple of God? And that the spirit of God dwells in you? And that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price? Do you not know this? And so what Ezekiel is seeing is perfection. 
he's seen the full and mature man. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, even to the gate that looks towards the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. Remember east in here. And his voice was like the noise of many waters. And the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city, and the visions which were like the vision that I saw by the river Kabar. Remember that? When we taught on chariot of the cherubim in, in the school? It's the, it's the chariot of the cherubim. God come down literally on a throne, on a crystal sea with cherubim holding it up. That's what he's seeing again. And he fell upon his face and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. The chariot of the cherubim, the glory of God literally enters this house. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And I heard him speaking unto me out of the house, and the man stood by me. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever in my holy name, shall the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings by their whoredom nor by their carcasses of their kings in their high places, in their setting of their threshold by my thresholds and their posts by my posts, and the wall between me and them. They have even defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. Wherefore, I have consumed them in mine anger." Now let them put away their whoredom and the carcasses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in the midst of them forever. Thou son of man, show the house to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. There's a pattern, and it's perfection. And we as Christians are brought before the perfect pattern of the temple, and what it should tell us is, we are not yet finished. The perfect temple. All the whoredom and all the carcasses of the king, get them out! God has an agenda, and he wants to make me the same dwelling place as Ezekiel's temple. That the glory of the Lord would enter in by the east gate. And he would take his throne in my life. And he would evidence that glory in and through these fingers, these toes, this mouth, these eyes, these ears, this heart, this mind. Okay, this is just the foreshadow. So Ezekiel is seen a temple on a high mountain. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house, same house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. It's the same place that the glory came in. Now, eastward, we have something, waters, that are issuing out from under the threshold of the house. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Then brought, me he, brought he me out of the way of the gate northward and led me about the way without unto the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits and he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. Okay, so we have the temple of God and we have this river that is gushing forth from the throne. And is literally coming out from under the threshold of the house. And the man takes Ezekiel. He measures out a thousand cubits and walks him into this water. And it's up to his ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through. The waters were to the loins, to the midsection, to the waist. Afterward, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass over. For the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. 
Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were many, very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country, and go down into the desert, and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. Which, by the way, is the Dead Sea. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that, Side shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaves shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his mouths, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. That might not make total sense to you. But every other time that this river is mentioned in Scripture is known as the river of life, and it is talking about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God gushing forth out of the sanctuary, gushing forth out of the temple, out of the throne room, the place where he dwells. And this temple actually has a river that is flowing out that if you measure it, there's an increase. And it's a constant increase. You can look at that in two ways, that the Spirit of God is going to increase throughout the ages. Okay, so say you come to that as your conclusion, which by the way, both of these that I'm going to mention could both be accurate at the same time. Because we are the temple of God as individuals and we are the temple of God corporately. And we are a part of the temple of God throughout the ages. We are all the bride of Christ even though we've never met people from 300 years ago that were a part of that bride and part of that temple. But imagine that there's an increase throughout history. More and more of the Spirit of God. Well, guess what? We should have a very high expectation then because those waters should be ready to be swam in. And right now, I don't even know. We might be kicking up a little puddle. We need something. We need what is ushering forth from beneath that throne. So look at this, just in case you need some clarifying scriptures. The ever-deepening river. Uh, this is actually just a selection of them because there's a lot more. There is a river that the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. This is Jerusalem, the city of God. The holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. It'll make glad the city. And it shall come to pass, as in Joel, in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord. Where is the fountain from? In the house of God. And, and shall water the valley of Shittim. Listen to Zechariah. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. This is literally the healing waters that will come gushing forth from beneath the throne of God. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and winter shall it be. In the last day, listen to this, this is Jesus speaking. That great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spoke he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, the Holy Spirit has been given. And this promised promise is now revealed in and through the saints of God. What does it say? Out of our belly shall flow rivers of living water. Do you know that you are the temple of God? Do you know that the throne within your soul is the place where he sets his feet in very reality and he sits and takes his throne and his place and his place of authority in our life? And what happens in us? There was a breaking forth of a fountain and out of our bellies literally gush forth living waters. Why? To change this world, not just us. God is looking for temples that will bear the fountain 
of God. But it's ever deepening in our life and in the life of those around us. Revelation 22, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that a thirst is a thirst, come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. There is more to be had. Are you willing to dare to have the audacity to say, not just up to my ankles, measure another thousand. Up to my knees. Not just up to my knees, measure another thousand. Up to my waist. Not just up to my waist, measure another thousand. I want to swim in it. What comes after that? I don't know. The dunking? Where we're completely submerged. We are no longer seen. Only the Spirit of God is. Only the revelation of his person. It's less of us. An ever decreasing measure of Ezekiel. An ever increasing measure of water. We get out of the way. He increases. This is what flows out from under the throne. More and more and more of God. I want it. This generation needs more than what I have to give. I have truth and I feel passionate about it. But this truth is only leading me to the point where I realize I'm up to my knees. And I know there needs to be a greater submerging in my life. I need more and I'm hungry for it. I'm desirous of seeing the fullness of Jesus Christ revealed in this earth. And I can't do it. Only he can do it. He must take the saints. And so I am asking my God daily for more. Jesus, I need more of you. I know what you did on that cross, and I need the full measure of it realized in my life. I refuse to accept that this is all I have. People get all caught up in this whole thing about only the Spirit of God at conversion, or then there's a second blessing. Well, by the way, this is more than a second blessing. This is an ever-increasing measure. This is an ongoing increase of God. daring to ask for more. 2 Kings 2.9 And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee, before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. Right, let's just stop there for a second. Elijah, one of the most powerful men of God throughout all of history. This man called forth fire from heaven. I'm consumed an altar, challenging an entire generation who cries out after seeing the witness of the power of God in his life. And they say, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elisha, when, when Elijah asks and says, ask anything from me and I'll give it to you. I want a double portion of what you have. You know what this means? It means that what Elijah had was not the fullness. I want you to realize that. What Elijah had was not the fullness because you cannot double something if it was. And then what does Elijah do? He steps back and he goes, whoa, uh, you've asked a hard thing. But if you see me taken up, you will know that you get it. If you don't see it, well, then you know you don't. And it came to pass, as they still went on, 
and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah, Elisha saw it. Is that one of the most amazing statements in scripture or what? Elisha saw it. And he cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither. And Elisha went over. The apostles are standing there at Mount Olivet and Jesus gives his final commission. And guess what? They saw him taken up. And the apostles sought greater works than these that I have done, you will do. That's impossible. That's what the body of Christ corporate can evidence on this earth. Something greater, something beyond an ever-increasing dimension and revelation of Jesus Christ in this earth. I know we're kicking around puddles right now, but we have to go back to the word of God and get the audacity of Elisha. I want double. We don't have anything right now. I want double what Elisha had. You know that Elisha had exactly double the miracles of Elijah in the Bible? Exactly double. He was one short of double, and he died. He was buried. Long after his death, these guys are running around with a dead man, and they threw it into the tomb of Elisha, and guess what? Popped back to life, and God goes, double. <laughs> God is mathematical. For whatever reason. And he knows that we don't have the fullness right now. The question is, do we? Because if we think what we have is all there is to gain, we won't ask for more. But I want to commission you as the church of Jesus Christ in this generation to dare to ask for more. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.